Our first reading this morning is the New Testament reading, which comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, beginning at verse 33. It's the parable of the tenants. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They'll respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures... The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Our second reading, the Old Testament reading, comes from the prophet Isaiah, from the fifth chapter of the prophet Isaiah and the first seven verses, the song of the vineyard. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and the men of Judah and the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. I'll put this as plainly as I can. The answer that we give to the problem of human sinfulness reveals the nature of the God in which we ultimately believe. The answer we give to the problem of human sinfulness 
reveals the nature of the God in which we ultimately believe. I'll come back to that. A friend of mine, who used to be a lecturer at Spurgeon's College, often says that there are two key questions which we must bear in mind when we try to come to understand a biblical passage. The first question, Dawn knows what I'm going to say because you know him as well, what God? And the second question, so what? So first, what God? Secondly, so what? Firstly, what God do we encounter through this text? And secondly, what difference does that make? These are not trivial questions, and there's no straightforward way out of them. For example, by asserting or trying to assert that there is only one God, or that we all believe in the same God. Because I don't think we do. To give you an example, the God that Richard Dawkins claims not to believe in is very definitely not the same God as the one that I do believe in. If I thought that God was what Richard Dawkins thinks God is, then I'm fairly sure that I wouldn't believe in him either. However, Dawkins' God is not the God in which I do very firmly believe, as those of you who have read my poem in this month's church magazine will know by now. This question of what God is never an easy one to answer, because there is none so deceived in this life as thee and me. The level of self-awareness that is required to be honest about our view of God is something which most of us, most of the time, find hard to achieve. And so sometimes we need some help. Sometimes that help can take the form of a friend, someone who comes alongside us and asks us gently why it might be that we're finding it so difficult, for example, to be tolerant of those who differ from our own perspectives. In this way, they might gently help us towards the insight that our own intolerance of others has its roots deep in our fear that God will judge us harshly. Uh, I'm already departing from the script, which is good, two minutes in. Anyway, uh, I was talking with a a, a friend, um, and they were expressing uh, profound disquiet around the Baptist Union's uh, decision earlier this year to allow ministers freedom of conscience on the issue of um, marriage relating to human sexuality. And, and we were, we were chatting this through and he knew where we stood and I know where he stands. And in the end, I, I said to my friend, why is it that you, you, this matters so much to you? And he said, aren't, aren't you afraid of getting it wrong? Aren't you afraid that God's going to judge you? Those, the way, the God that we believe in affects the decisions that we take about what kind of people we're going to be. Anyway, an insight such as this, once it has been reached, can open the door to the possibility of transformation and change. My friend said, I'd love, I'd love to be where you are, but I'm scared. I'm scared of God. A friend who helps us gain the insight is a friend indeed. But sometimes we need more than a kindly hand on the shoulder to release us from our self-deception. Sometimes we need to be actively shocked from our delusions if we are to have our eyes opened to an alternative and potentially more healthy reality. Think of King David. 
at the depths of his murderous adultery with Bathsheba. Now, you know the story. Had the prophet Nathan simply confronted him with a challenge about his behaviour, how would that have gone? It would surely have been off with Nathan's head too. So Nathan wisely chose a less direct approach. And instead of a direct confrontation with King David about his adultery, he simply told David a story, a parable, about two men, one who had everything and the other who had nothing except a tiny little pet lamb which he loved and kept as part of his household. When in Nathan's story, the rich man took the tiny lamb from the poor man to cook it for a guest, rather than taking one of his own flock, David was hooked into the story. Little did he realise, of course, that the rich man was him, the poor man was Uriah, and the little lamb was the beautiful Bathsheba, whom he had stolen for himself. So when King David, all caught up in the story, pronounced that the rich man who had taken the little lamb from the poor man deserved to die, he was, of course, condemning himself out of his own mouth. So when Nathan turns to David and says, you are that man, the way is open for David's repentance and transformation. And this kind of parable has a name, a technical term in parable studies. It is known as a juridical parable. These are stories where the reader is forced into the circumstances of the parable. And only once they have become complicit in passing judgment on characters in the story does the lens then drop and they realise they've actually just pronounced judgment on themselves. It's a very clever form of storytelling. Kierkegaard describes parables like this as thoughts which wound from behind. This is exactly what we find going on in Matthew's version of the parable of the unfaithful servants in the vineyard, which Duncan read to us earlier. We know this parable so well as well, don't we? There's a man, he's a landowner, he plants a vineyard. He puts a fence round it and leases it to tenants whilst he's away in another country. When the time has come for the harvest, he sends his slaves, but they're beaten and killed and stoned, and he sends further slaves, and they're treated in the same way, and then finally he sends his son, who is also killed by the tenants. This is a story which those listening to Jesus would, like us, have found intensely familiar. You see, not only did they live in a world of vineyards and tenant farmers and absentee landlords, but also the chief priests and the Pharisees, to whom Jesus is primarily directing this parable, would have known very well the story of the vineyard from Isaiah chapter 5, which we also heard, read to us a few moments ago. And they would have known that Isaiah's parable draws a clear parallel between the vineyard in the story and the nation of Israel. If you were a first century Jew, you heard vineyard and you knew that what was meant was the nation of Israel, the people of God. However, the other aspects of the parable as Jesus told it would have taken rather more thought and creativity to decode. Uh, one of the commentaries I read actually said at the beginning something like, this is a deceptive parable because it seems so straightforward, but it's actually one of the more complex ones. I thought, yeah, you're not kidding. You see, Jesus' parable is different enough from Isaiah's for them to clearly not be the same story. But it's similar enough for those listening to Jesus to think that they might be able to guess where Jesus is going with his vineyard story. 
So let's hear it as the chief priests and the Pharisees might have heard it. Try and set aside our later Christian filters that we bring to this story. And hear it as the scribes and the Pharisees might have heard it with Jesus first telling it. Well, the vineyard is Israel. That much certainly seems clear to them. They would have probably also assumed that the landowner was God. A reasonable assumption on the basis of Isaiah's parable, where the planter of the vineyard is clearly identified as the Lord. They would probably also have identified the servants of the landowner as the prophets and messengers sent by God to Israel to call it to fruitfulness. They may even have seen themselves in this role. They were the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the religious custodians of the nation. They and their predecessors had for generations been calling Israel to recover its zeal for the Lord in the face of the constant pressures and temptations to compromise and collaborate with whatever imperial power held sway in the region. So from the Assyrians to the Babylonians, from the Hasmoneans to the Seleucids to the Romans, those who had tended the vineyard of God's people down the centuries had done so by oppressing its people, by demanding compromise and tribute at every turn from those who actually had been called to be faithful to the Lord and the Lord alone. So you can see why the Pharisees and the chief priests might have liked Jesus' parable at least at first. The way they would have heard it, they were the heroes of this story. They were the tragic heroes, the ones who had suffered for their prophetic task of calling the nation to faithfulness. Some of them had been stoned, some of them had been killed, some of them had been persecuted. The unfaithful tenants of the Romans, for example, kept repeatedly trying to steal the vineyard of God for themselves. So it's no surprise then that when Jesus springs his trap, they walk right into it. You see, using this story, Jesus has drawn the Pharisees into inadvertently revealing what God it is that they actually believe in. Because his parable poses the key question of what the appropriate response should be to the problem of human sin. The question, as Jesus poses it, looks something like this. If God looks like the landowner, what then will his response be to the avaricious and unfaithful tenants of his vineyard? And it's at this point that he hears from the Pharisees' own lips that they believe in a God of violence and vengeance, a God of wrath and retaliation. It turns out that the chief priests and the Pharisees believe in a God who will kill the unfaithful tenants and hand the vineyard over to someone else. Now, of course, what the scribes and the Pharisees were hoping for here was that uh, God would kill the Romans and hand the vineyard over to them and they could be the faithful tenants in the future who inherited it. What they encounter instead is Jesus turning the tables against them as they are revealed not to be the tragic heroes of this story, but actually the unfaithful tenants themselves. And like David before Nathan, the Pharisees and the scribes discover that they have condemned themselves out of their own mouths. Is it any wonder 
that they start to want to rid themselves of this troublesome man. These people have just revealed themselves to believe in a God of violence. And so they then do next that which comes most naturally to them. They opt for a violent solution to their presenting problem. The Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, whose theology was forged in the crucible of the Croatian civil wars, says that if you believe in a god of violence, you will tend to prefer a violent solution to life's problems. And so the Pharisees, having revealed just such a view of God in the answer they gave to Jesus, then immediately take the steps required to bring the tragic conclusion of Jesus' story into reality, and they start to plot to kill the son. And in so doing, they reveal themselves unambiguously to be the unfaithful tenants, condemned by their own theology to the wrathful judgment of the God they have created. Meanwhile, of course, the reality inhabited by the Pharisees is not the reality inhabited by God, because God revealed in Jesus Christ is not a God of violence and retribution. He is a God of peace and forgiveness. The Pharisees had got God wrong. God is not the landowner here. He does not kill the Jews and take away from them the kingdom of God. And any attempt to read this parable in that direction runs the profound risk of capitulating with anti-Semitism. If the Jewish leaders are condemned here, it is on the basis of their own theology of condemnation. God is not the landowner of the Pharisees' imagining. Rather, God is one who offers forgiveness to those who betray him, He is one who reverses the horrific effects of the worst violence the human heart can conceive by raising his son from death to life. And in so doing, opens the door for new life for all of those trapped in the psychotic spirals of violence and counter-violence unto death. This is the God revealed in Jesus, and it is a very different God to that so feared by the Pharisees. So, what God? Do we worship a God of violence or a God of peace? Do we worship a God of vengeance or a God of forgiveness? Do we worship a God of justice or a God of bloodshed, a God of righteousness or a God of weeping and crying, as Isaiah puts it? Well, as Jesus said to his disciples a little bit earlier in Matthew's Gospel, you will know them by their fruits. Our answer to the so what question may well offer us our insight into what God we worship. It certainly did for the Pharisees. They discovered what God they believed in when they were confronted with their default answer to what the appropriate response should be to the question of human sinfulness, encapsulated for them in the horrific actions of the unfaithful and violent tenants. But what about us? We don't live in an agrarian society. Analogies based on vineyards don't carry such rhetorical force in our technologised world. But consider this. There was a man who went to a foreign country to bring help to those who were suffering there, because this country had been torn apart by war for many years. 
He was taken prisoner by some of those who lived there, people who wanted to take control of that country for themselves. They brutally murdered the innocent aid worker and then posted a video of his beheading on the internet. Now, what should the leader of that man's country do to those who had killed the man? I suspect that the answer we give to that question may tell us more about our view of God than we want to know. Those who imagine a violent God have a predisposition to seeing violence as the divinely legitimated solution to human sin. And those who see violence as the answer may well discover that this reveals what God they worship. Jesus invites us all to imagine God differently. He invites us all to step into a world where God is the God of peace and justice and not the God of vengeance and bloodshed. So what answer should we give to the problem of human sinfulness? Especially when the latest personification of that problem is committing terrible atrocities before our very eyes. Well, our response will be shaped by our view of God. Is our God a God of war, fighting for the right, bearing his holy arm before the nations in a show of divine defiance and demanding and obedience and compliance to his holy path? If so, send in the drones. But if our God is a God of peace, whose response to human violence is to absorb it into his own body and to go to the cross of broken flesh and spilled blood to enter into and redeem the worst excesses of human sinfulness, then we too are surely called to be people of peace and not of war. This coming week is the week of action on drones, and the Times has reported this week that British armed unmanned drones may well be in the skies above Iraq before the end of the year. If we are the people of God then we are the vineyard of the Lord of hosts. And the words of the prophet Isaiah echo down the millennia to us also. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed. Righteousness, but heard a cry. So what fruit will be found among us? What God do we worship? And so what? What?